I'm Will Yeoman and welcome to another episode of the Pod Well Travel. I'm joined today by travel editor Stephen Scarfield and travel aviation writer. Every, look, I don't know what to call you anymore, Jeffrey, because just you just do everything. Just call me GT. GT. That's what I feel like right now and it's only 7am in the morning. Uh, <laughs> look, gents, welcome to the show. Stephen, you're calling in remotely today, which is slightly unusual, but welcome nevertheless. Thanks. Yes, I'm just, uh, I'm getting ready to go to Antarctica, so I'm sort of keeping myself to myself a bit the last few days before I get on the plane. Of course. And I need a clear test to get on the ship, and it would be embarrassing not to be able to. It would be a disaster, to say the least. Anyway, I was going to say, later on the show, we'll be welcoming Stephanie Robertson, who is the new regional manager for Western Australia and South Australia for FCM, which is the the corporate uh, arm of um, the Flight Centre Travel Group. In the meantime, Geoffrey, you've been getting up to some really exciting things because the, um, the Queen Elizabeth is back for the first time in quite some time right here in Perth. Yes, magnificent sight. Got up uh, 3 o'clock in the morning on Monday to uh, get down to Frio to see it come through the... Uh, the heads at uh, just just before five o'clock, mm. uh, magnificent sight. I mean, that's a beautiful ship. I mean, the Cunard make beautiful ships, and this is a glorious ship. Uh, real Australians have a real love affair with Cunard uh, over the years, um, and uh, this uh, this cruise was from Barcelona. A lot of Western Australians were actually on that uh, cruise and mm. got off in Fremantle. And then uh, she's now doing a circumnavigation of Australia uh, back into Fremantle uh, on uh, December 2 um, and then across to Sydney. Um, but yes, I went there to see it come in, then also to um, have a look at the loading of all the produce that was going on board. Mm, um, okay. Big, uh, large amount of produce going on. And when she comes back on December 2nd, She's loading 300 pallets of WA produce, doing wow. a major uh, replenishment. Um, so quite a logistics exercise, mm, uh, watching mm. all of that, uh, which we did on the wharf. And uh, so the full stories are in this Saturday's uh, travel. And not to be missed, a bit of a crowd down there? Yes, there were. Uh, quite mm. a few people down there. And uh, also uh, Fremantle Ports had a drone up uh, taking some fabulous photographs, which we're also going to feature in in, uh, in Saturday travel. Okay. Um, she makes a, she makes a magnificent sight, um, and uh, so uh, it, it was a real good story. Real good story. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because this is like the, the the premium end of cruising, isn't it? Look, it is. It's it's sort of traditional cruising, if mm. you like. If you mm. like the old traditional cruise ship experience, um, then this is the one to go on. I mean, th- that's the thing with cruising these days you know there's cruise ships there's cruise ships and there's cruise ships you have to really be very careful about the experience that you particularly want Mm. that's why it's really important i think to go to a travel agent and talk about a a cruise specialist and talk about the sort of thing that you want um not so much a matter of where you're going but it's what's that ship offering what's their typical clientele uh etc etc and then they can sort of say well look you really need to go on this one or this Mm. one and i've got many friends who for instance, a, a really good friend of mine uh, only travels on Holland America. 
He likes, loves the Holland America experience. It's just what they want, and they simply go on Holland America ships. Same with Cunard. People say, "Look, I'm a Cunard person. That's the ones I'm going to go wow, on." Wow, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yes, because, and you also, depending on what part of the world you are cruising, you've also got to be mindful of cultural differences between the cruising population in different mm. countries, and mm. um, and and so you know you can find yourself on board. Uh, with some nationalities who, for instance, get the towels and put the towels on the lilos first thing in the morning. That's that's their lilo for the whole day, whether they're there or not. So you have these sorts of dynamics mm. that, are, that are playing around and in the background. So it is really important to, um, to, to get a cruise specialist and to understand exactly what experience you want uh, to get the very best out of cruising because it, it is the best value for money. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good advice. Stephen, mm. are you a Cunard man? Uh, look, I, I I just want a black tie every night. I want people to dress properly. <laughs> I, so I'm at the formal end of cruising. I've got to tell you, Ca- Casey, um, Casey will be very proud of you. He'll be very proud. <laughs> very proud. Casey will be very proud yes. of me. Uh, but as, as Jeff says, you know, there's a real differentiation in my mind, mm. very clear break in my mind between, you know, what I think of as the traditional cruise liner, you know, which is a sort of ship of passage like these ships are, and. Mm. Um, the sort of floating village cruise ships, bigger and bigger, which which we see, you know, probably in um, you know out of out of Queensland now and through the Pacific. You know, I mean that's a different kettle of fish. But I say cruise cruise liners to me like this have a completely different dynamic and a different dynamic on board as well. So mm. what Jeffrey's saying is absolutely spot on. And mm. I mean, I will tell a story of a reader who. It was a bit disappointing because he'd booked a seven-day cruise out of Hong Kong, but he got it all wrong. He'd done it himself, and it turned out to be um, a casino cruise, which went mm. out of the harbour every night so they could gamble and then back in every morning. And they did that for seven days, so he just went, <laughs> he just went in and out of the harbour so they could gamble at night. So it was a bit of a disaster. So you you know you can think you're going on a seven-day cruise, but not. Um, so yeah, uh, as Jeffrey says, being on the right ship, um, not just the destinations. As Jeff also said, but you know the the, the mood of the ship, and it's, it's difficult to pin that when we're talking here. But it it is really discernible when you get on board how a ship functions. Um, mm. I mentioned I'm just going to Antarctica, and and on board those ships there, you know, there's a very different mood. I've been on ships in Antarctica, which it felt more like a Disney show than an expedition. You know, mm. so getting that mood right is important. Yeah, indeed, it really is. Absolutely. <clears throat> now, Stephen, while I've got you, I wanted to talk about um, a story that I've got coming um, up. In, in this. Actually, Will, sorry, oh. just before you go. Je- Jeffrey, but you're getting on on December the 2nd, aren't you? Uh, look, I am indeed. I'm getting on oh, December 2nd. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yes. You took a bit of a flush that one out. Yes. Well, okay. well I, I am, not and a, I'm, I'm yeah, absolutely looking anymore. forward to it. <laughs> no, I really am. Not looking, anymore, I'm really looking forward to it. And I said to my wife, you know, uh, the, dis- the, the time between now and December 2nd is complete blur. I'm just sort of going through the motions because <laughs> I'm just so focused in getting on this, this boat, uh, this, this magnificent cruise liner, and uh, around to Esperance, uh, Adelaide, Kangaroo Island, wow. and into Melbourne, getting off in Melbourne. Um, and uh, it'll, it'll give me a, v- a great opportunity of really experiencing the Cunard um, line, and uh, I'm going to get access to the bridge and the engine room and the kitchens and the storage areas, I'm getting full access. Mm. So it'll really be a, um, a great experience to uh, 
not only experience the, the cruise itself, but to get behind the scenes and, and, and flesh out the dynamics of how this all works. So it'll be great. Looking forward sounds to amazing. It. And mm. then, so we can expect to read all about those experiences too sometime afterwards? Absolutely, mm. yes. Well, yes. well, we're looking forward mm. to that. In the yep. meantime, I won't be shedding a tear for you. No, no, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Stephen, as I was going to say, I was going to mention a story that I've got coming up in this weekend's um, travel oh, yeah. section, which is all about Emirates' new vegan offerings, which are very impressive. And they're largely powered by this amazing high-tech hydroponic vertical farm. I think it's Bustanica or Bustanica that Emirates yeah, uh, runs um, with vertical farming specialist Crop One right near um, the Dubai airport. And Stephen, I mean, I know you're a bit of a fan of vertical farming from way back, but these these new yeah. vegan offerings, they look absolutely amazing, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I do come from a, a rural background, so mm. I'm, I've been very interested in this for uh, over a decade, really. So basically, a, a vertical farm, for those who don't know, is like a big aircraft hangar, but it's very tall. It's completely enclosed with no windows. And, and the game changer, the reason that we have these vertical farms now is LED lighting. So with LED, you get uh, you know much reduced power use. So quite a lot of big vertical farms will be completely self-contained for power. Mm. So the uh, basically, if you, if you imagine a sort of five or six-story building and you're standing inside it and there's just rack upon rack of plants as high as you can see, obviously with big uh, lift, um, uh, sort of forklift trucks basically, which can get all these uh, produce out. It's all grown in a medium, not in soil as such, mm. which means you have complete control of water and if the nutrients go into those plants, it's obviously pest-free, so it can be pesticide-free. It's very efficient use of you know, water and, um, uh, and, and you know, food stuff to feed, feed food for the plants. But then, of course, you can control, obviously, you control the light. Um, just, just to clear one thing, which I have been asked so many times, is that plants don't actually need sun. Okay? They need light, but they need light in a certain frequency. Mm. So... There is this photosynthetically active radio, radiation range, it's PRA range of 400 to 700 nanometers. So they need a certain sort of spectrum of light, um, which are red, blue, and green wave bands. Mm. That's what plants need. So if you supply that with LED, that's precisely what they need. They don't actually need the, the energy from the sun as such, um, which is sort of common, common thought, I suppose. So you can imagine, and I say Dubai is a good example where you can you can have a flow. So we might be looking at a, a, a vertical farm will you will have an imprint of probably if you look at the produce of one percent of what you would need if it was just a land based farm. So you've got a big tall building, fully enclosed, controlling all these features of, as I said, the light, the mm. water, and the mm. feed. Uh, on 1% of the land, and, you know, particularly in a place like Dubai, you can pretty well be solar-powered because you don't need much, just pumps to, you need a little bit of power for the LEDs and pumps to run the water, and that's about it. And you can produce, you know, um, up to 26 harvests a year out of a vertical farm, and you don't have to ship it. 
because it'll be right next door to the airport. Mm. No, no, exactly. So you're not suddenly you're not bringing in produce from you know Kenya and Mexico and goodness knows where. You know, you're, it's just there. So it's it's absolutely a game changer. And I see this. I mean, there's there's a very good uh, even in Manhattan in New York. There's a farm one is a vertical farm there, and it's a sort of neighbourhood vertical farm. So you know, and it's a member-based vertical fund. So people in Manhattan join as members, which helps, has helped to fund it. And then, of course, get produce every week delivered. So that's become a self-funding vertical farm in the middle of Manhattan. Um, and in Singapore's been very, you know, I mean, the UK led, led this to some degree. Singapore has taken up very strongly. There's four very big vertical farms there. And actually, one of them, next time I'm in Singapore, Sky Greens uh, does tours for the public on Saturday. Mm. Um, that's a story that I've got in my sites um, because, you know, it'd be so interesting to for, for lots of us. You know, there's a lot of rural people here in Western Australia and, you know, elsewhere traveling to Singapore who might be very interested to see behind the scenes of this new, this new farming wave. Oh, absolutely. Now, you mentioned when we first started talking about it, saying what, why have we got these, what's made this possible? And that's the LED lighting that's been key to it. But but why, what's been the impetus behind these in the first place? And of course, you've touched on that, and that's scarcity of resources, whether it's space or soil or nutrients or sunlight or something like that. I mean, there's a, there's a reason we've there are people are wanting to build these in the first place, isn't there? That's right. It's massively efficient. And, and of course, air miles, air miles have become very important. Lots of places in the world, um, so England's a good example where, you know, in a supermarket we'll have the air miles underneath the produce. So, you know, and gradually you become more educated to how far your food has been flown or transported. Um, whereas I say, if you can grow, as you've just said, you can grow um, chia and fruit and avocados and goodness what else, you know, on site virtually. Mm. Um, but certainly grain crops go very, very well in vertical farms. Um, so partly because it's pest free, and yeah. um, it's very controlled. You know, um, you're not going to get you're not going to get frost. You're not no. going to get um, drought. You're not going to get you know. It's just it's a perfect scenario. No, you're right. And it's you know, huge. yeah. So, but also say so, you know you can be you can actually be seasonal, and you can be on site, mm. which is. A game changer. So all because of LED light. Mm. Yeah. No, it's incredible. Now, now Jeffrey, um, you'd be across a lot of the, the menu offerings on various airlines and so forth. Have you noticed that sort of, you know, a stronger move towards vegetarian, vegan, more healthy eating? Uh, look, absolutely. I mean, healthy eating on aeroplanes is critical, particularly when it comes to sort of, you know, arriving in better shape. And it's been a trend for quite some time that uh, airlines have focused on healthier options, mm. uh, and you get the you usually get the little uh, little sign, healthier option sign, and now moving more into the the vegan area as well, and and other uh, directions. And uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's great uh, because uh, you know healthy eating is good for you anyway mm. and it's particularly so on an aeroplane where you just don't need to eat all the wrong food because you're, you're going to arrive pretty well knocked out if you do because uh, you sort of tend to drink too much alcohol as well um, so there's a real science goes into this and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I know that uh, Stephen's also been to Emirates Kitchen in, in Dubai which mm. is the biggest kitchen in the world mm. 
And when you see the, the, the work that goes into the food preparation and the science behind it, it's really an amazing place to go. It's one of the most fascinating places to go is Emirates Kitchen in, uh, in uh, Dubai. Mm, okay, incredible. Mm. Um, I guess traditionally airline food has not had a good reputation. No, it, it hasn't. And, and, of course, part of that is, is to do with the altitude. Uh, taste changes with altitude. Mm. Uh, and, of course, you, you've got this food prepared, cooked or pre-cooked, then reheated. Mm. I mean, it goes through so many processes and, you know, the fact that they deliver it as beautifully as they do. It's a miracle in it, itself, it, isn't it, it really? It, exactly, <laughs> you know, and and I know that airlines have been cutting back and cutting back and, and sometimes on domestic flights we're now given a cardboard box with some scrambled eggs in it and think, well, I wish for the good old days. Um, but look, on international flights, which, which is what we're talking about, mm, yes. the food service is excellent mm. uh, and, and really an outstanding scientific achievement to deliver it to you in in the state mm. that it is and the taste that it is and they've got some tricks you know they like to they go for certain foods because they retain their their taste and they add sauces that you know help. Don't, don't separate as well you know? yeah mm. the, the, and as i said it, it really is a science it really mm. is a science mm. there's two sciences one one is how does the airplane fly and the other science is how come the food's so good <laughs> despite what's had to go through <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the other thing too, because sometimes with airlines flying to some destinations that they're not happy with the catering, they actually yeah. take it all the way with them and then bring it and they serve it on the way back. So right. there's there's some there's some serious time uh, issues going on with with some of the food that's uh, served on airplanes. Mm. Now, now, Stephen, you've interviewed some some chefs in the past that have discussed these issues, those challenges that are involved in coming up with. Uh, you know, food for for, for 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 flights as opposed to just being in restaurants. That's right. Uh, one of the most interesting uh, conversations on that subject is with Neil Perry, who does mm. um, for more than 25 years, I think, is the longest relationship between a sort of celebrity or a guest chef and an airline. And um, Neil was saying that, you know, one of the main drivers for him is the choreography of putting the meal together mm. because he said if you think if, if a kitchen looks busy and small, the, the galley of an aircraft is is so small and there's people doing things, trying to do things quickly and serve, you know, lots of people pretty quickly. Mm. But the actual movement is very important of you know, how you place this and that and this person has to move there and this person has to move there. So it all has to be coordinated. Mm. Yeah, that you actually start with the choreography of, of what's possible because if it's too complex and everyone's just falling over each other, it's going to be a big mess before you've even got to the, mm. got to mm. the plate sort of thing. But, mm. uh, I thought that was very interesting. I hadn't thought that through myself. Yeah, yeah no, it's a fascinating topic, isn't it? So, okay. Will, you raised a very interesting point too in your story, which is that, you know, this is another feature of um, carbon reduction. Well, I guess I was kind of being tongue-in-cheek, but maybe not. I mean, I was writing about, you know, could in-flight vegan meals actually go towards carbon offsetting air travel? Because if you make that decision and everyone is eating vegan, for example, on a particular flight, I mean, if you think it, because um, the, the IPCC has talked about switching to more plant-based meals, helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and I guess that's a, a bit of a no-brainer, really. But, yeah, it just kind of occurred to me as I was looking into the story. Well... I think it's very. Actually, I think it's a very good point. Well, of course, as we well, I, I, I probably some people don't realise this, mm. 
But cows are far, far, far worse than aeroplanes when mm. it comes to, to uh, emissions. Don't, I thought you were going to say when it comes to flying. <laughs> and and yeah. so, yes, I, eating eating less ham, eating fewer hamburgers <laughs> and eating not, not passing up on the steak and mm. having a vegan patty instead or something like that. Yes, you should, uh, you should get some carbon credits for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I don't know if you were tongue in cheek. You should probably be tofu in cheek. Actually, <laughs> yes. but, uh, no, it's my tongue. I'm allowed to eat my own tongue. <laughs> Self cannibalism. On, yes. on, on that, on that, on that lovely image. I'll say goodbye to you, gents, because I'm about to welcome Stephanie onto the show. Um, in the meantime, Stephen, it was. I always like to ask you: Is there anything coming up? Anything else that uh, listeners should know about? No, there's nothing happening out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In fact, yeah, there's a lot coming out. There's a lot coming out. Um, I'm just writing about five things to do in a hotel room, um, and that's not what you think. And also, I'm just responding to some a couple of emails about uh, now people are out and about about how to avoid being pickpocketed. Exactly. So we've always got, you know, it's quite interesting when, when readers contact us with certain issues. You go, well, you know, if you've got that issue, probably other people have. So, mm. yeah, we've got a lot coming up, a lot coming up. But as oh. I say, um, Jeffrey's off and I'm off, so hold the fort, will you? I'll try to. I'll do my best. All right, gents. Well, thanks again. As I say, I'm going to talk to Stephanie now. So all the best until next week, and thanks for joining us on the pod Well Travelled. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Stephanie, welcome to the pod Well Travelled. Thank you for having me, William. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, could we start by your telling us a little about your background and your career path and, and your exciting new position? Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, well, I've always loved travel. Um, I wanted to travel myself when I was younger, so I got into travel uh, to try and you know find a pathway to be able to do that. So you might hear an accent. I'm not originally from <laughs> Australia. <laughs> Even though I do have my passport, I'm a true uh, Aussie citizen, but um, I actually moved across uh, to Australia in 2012. Um, so celebrating 10 years. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> We're celebrating, I see. Um, so I came across uh, and I uh, took my travel industry experience with me and I started with SBM Travel. Uh, 10, 10 years ago now, a little bit longer. So um, I guess FCM has been um, really kind to me in that we really are allowed to flourish in our leadership journey. Mm. Uh, we have a really cool pathway that we call Brightness of Future. And um, it's really led me to my leadership journey, uh, you know, where I am today. And um, I'm actually just returning to the workforce after uh, becoming a mum for the second time. Oh, well, congratulations. Um, Thank you so much. So, um, yeah, I am feeling very grateful to be supported in a leadership position like this while still being able to bring up my family. Oh, amazing. So for people who don't know much about FCM, can you give us a brief overview of where it sits in the, in the Flight Centre Travel Group's offerings? Because everyone's heard of Flight Centre. Of course. <laughs> everyone has, and all for, for good reasons. You know, um, the red and white stores are everywhere. It's hard yes. not to see us. Um, I guess FCM, we're the large market corporate side. Uh, we look after, um, you know, large market customers and that could be anywhere from Australia to um, around the world. We've got a global footprint. We're in about uh, 100 countries, I think, last, last count. Um, headquartered in Brisbane, uh, 8,000 odd employees. Um, and we kind of look after uh, any large market customer that has a, a requirement to travel for business. Mm, okay, that sounds amazing. So I'm, I'm wondering then, um, 
you know, if we can just drill down into some certain areas that have impacted the world in general, but specifically in the in the uh, the area you work in, for example, the, the mm. huge impact that new technologies had on corporate travel. Oh my goodness, tech tech <laughs> is coming at us thick and fast, more so than it ever has. Um, it's a great thing. Like there's a, there's a lot of things that have come out of COVID, and, and the new technology is um, is probably one of the most exciting. Um, we're actually starting to see, you know, en- enhancements to make the travel journey easier. So mm. I'll give you a good example of, um, you might have seen lately in the, in the news that Brisbane Airport's starting to roll out the biometrics technology in time for the Olympics. And they're going to have a, a big surge in passenger arrivals. Mm, indeed. So, you know, whilst this kind of technology has been around for quite some time, we're starting to see the investments are now taking place to actually implement it. Um there is still lots of investment, but you only need to look at what's happened this year with, you know, significant delays and disruptions in flight cancellations. So whilst we are working on rolling out lots of new technology, we actually still need humans to assist. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's lots of uh, lots of technology that we could, you know, put in front of a client. But if ultimately at the end of the day, if you're stuck in an airport, you know, you really do need your your travel managers um, to be able to support you whilst on the ground. No, one hundred percent. And you sort of you've already partly answered the question that I was going to ask next, which is the impact of COVID. And but I'm specifically interested in um, the idea that some uh, people may find it less necessary to travel in a way because um, of the technology we've had available in terms of Teams and Zoom and all those yeah. sort of um, interactions you can now have over the internet in a way that we didn't really quite have before. Have you noticed a shift um, yourself in that? We have no noticed a sh- sorry noticed a shift. However, it's probably not the way that you think it might have have fallen. Mm. I feel like our travel community is um, is tired of of Zooms and um, you know Teams meetings. We had such a long time where we were grounded, especially here in WA, um, whereby you know you you literally couldn't see your team or you couldn't have that business meeting in person. And so what we're seeing now, you know, there is a lot of inflation in fares because of COVID. There's not enough seats on the flights to get our people out mm. um, and there's not, not enough uh, supply, the demand is high, but people are actually valuing the face-to-face time. Um, they're, they're you know, paying the, paying the extra price to be able to have those discussions in person and we are actually seeing that, you know, the travel industry is, um, is booming. <laughs> the tidal wave, as we spoke about for a long time, <laughs> is, is well and truly here. Yeah, look, that, that that makes absolute sense to me, and, and certainly I, for one, am, yeah, sometimes it's a bit of a drag to think, oh yeah, let, let's let's meet over Teams, let's meet over Zoom. It think, is, yeah. isn't it? We've we've had enough of them. <laughs> we're hoping that um, we're hoping that you know the 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 increase in seats that are coming back to Perth. You might have seen the Emirates are bringing back their eighteen seats. Oh yes, and mm. Qatar bringing back theirs too. It's so exciting, and we really will welcome you know those planes back to the runways. So hopefully that will eventually drive prices down with just a bit more competition in the market. Absolutely. Now, look, another factor that may have um, had some play in in, in your industry is certainly the um, increasing environmental awareness uh, with customers and, and certainly companies as well, and particularly talking at the time of recording this with COP27 and full, string, uh, full, full swing at the moment, um, it's full on swing. everyone's mind, isn't it? It is. It's at the forefront of all of our conversations. Um, it's interesting one, actually. Uh, our consulting arm, FDM Consulting, we just recently surveyed the market and surveyed the market globally. And Whilst it is really important, we actually found that 44% of our customers said that um, price was still more important at the moment uh, than sustainability. Also, mm. they do really want to educate their travellers to make mm. the right decisions whilst travelling. So it's a really big ticket item and we are starting to see customers become more real about it. 
um, and kind of taking action rather than just talking about it. So looking at not just paying money to offset, but trying to encourage their travelers to make the right choices whilst they're on their trip. So things like, you know, do you take your carry cup or, um, you know, single use plastics? Do we, you know, we don't use them or, you know, even as simple as do we reuse our hand towels, um, you know, in the hotel? So, yeah, just trying to educate the travellers on what it actually means to be responsible um, while still grappling a little bit with the balancing of trying to maintain business. Absolutely. And about our journey. Yeah, no, no, I completely get that. Now, just um, thinking about this concept of frictionless travel that we've heard so much about the last few years, and, and again, you've kind of already in, in, uh, addressed that in some of your answers, but just as an overall concept, how vital is that, particularly when you're talking about industry and business? Sure. Um I guess frictionless is such a buzzword in the industry just now, and, and I love it. Um, there's been a lot of stress and anxiety for the travel community over the last few years, and so now more than ever, it's super important to have a stress-free, um, you know, a frictionless way to travel for, for our customers. So um, what, are, what are our companies doing? Um, they're looking at protocols. You know, what do we actually include in a travel policy to make sure that when you're on the road, you feel supported? Like, what happens if I get sick? You know, how do I look at insurance or you know am i able to you know visit a local hospital those types of things Mm. um but also things like um you know giving them an extra day to settle in when they actually travel instead of coming straight off a plane and going straight into a meeting um you know providing a a travel pack you know sanitizer a mask Mm. just try try to get ahead of the game so that travelers are feeling more comfortable with the journey and the preparation um, to try and remove a lot of anxiety that they've come as a, as a result of COVID. Yeah, look, it's so important. I mean, that, that's, that's fantastic. Um, now, uh, just to finish with, uh, usually I always ask people if there's mm-hmm. anything else I'd like to mention or talk about, because invariably there's probably a question that you were dying for me to ask you, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, look, I've got to say it. Um, there's probably never been a more important time to have a travel management company and um, mm. you know a travel manager support you whilst being up in the air. Um, we we are seeing more so than ever the, the value that it's returning to businesses. Mm. Okay, look, fair point. Now, just just to double check, are you, are you now based in Perth again? I am. Yeah. I am. I'm based in Perth. I'm a local WA girl. Um, even though I don't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you could conceivably have come from the other Perth, couldn't you? <laughs> That's true. Very true. <laughs> okay, well, looks Maybe not been... quite as beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, you're a bit of a softie. Um, okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us on the pod Well Travelled. Um, good luck Thanks with the new position. Me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, much let's just hope it's, it's plain flying, plain sailing for all of us into the future. I love it. <laughs> okay, take care now. Bye. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye.